0: Hi everyone, and welcome to Warm Regards, a dialogue between the scientists, journalists, and other people on the front lines of climate change. I'm Jacqueline Gill, a paleoecologist at the University of Maine, taking the reins this week for Eric Holthouse, who is currently on assignment, which I think makes him sound like he's in the CIA or something. Joining me, as always, is Andy Revkin, who is eagerly awaiting your leaks as the senior reporter for climate at ProPublica. How's the news this week, Andy?
1: Um, pretty weird there's um, well uh, the, the uh, not so weird is that an inconvenient sequel truth to power is the, the movie of the moment well at least for those who are interested in climate change yeah. and um, uh, Scott Pruitt just today the EPA um, um, office of scientific integrity uh, said he has the right uh, to express his opinion that carbon dioxide is not the primary contributor to global warming so, uh, and that's, you know, the policy realities is when you, when you um, run the show, you kind of get to torque things. And um, there was um, news about that we are now only have a 5% chance of avoiding two degree rise from pre-industrial temperatures. Uh, I saw Chris Mooney had written about that at the Washington Post and that's, um, of course, two degrees was defined as a dangerous threshold uh, by mostly a political process. Um, there are those like Gavin Schmidt at NASA, who say it's more complicated. So, But for what it's worth, the odds of avoiding a lot of warming that's going to last a long time are very low.
0: So you're saying it's been a quiet week <laughs> in <laughs> yeah. climate news, yeah.
1: Oh, oh and uh, 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 a Berkeley researcher team has, um, they claim they found a statistical link between suicide rates in farmers in India and uh, climate change, which is um, controversial. There's, oh, wow. there's so many conflating, so many competing factors in studying a social thing like that it's if you might remember just a few years ago it was all gmo's fault right oh so I so which is it everybody let's uh, make a decision
0: yeah well and it, it also just reminds me that you know one of the the things that we're hoping to do this season is really start to bring in some people who really have the most to to gain or lose from from climate change and so right. keep you know our listeners at home should definitely keep an ear out. Or if you know someone um, that we should have on the show, definitely let us know. Um, Also, uh, if Al Gore is listening, uh, we still would really love to get you on warm regards, because I really, really want to ask you what I'm supposed to tell all the climate change deniers when they say, but what about Al Gore and his giant house? Like, so if you could just tell me what to say, then I could just shut all of that down forever. That would be great. Uh, But so for today's show, we are going to talk about technology. So as most of our longtime listeners should know, I'm a fan from video games to Twitter to this podcast to wearable tech. I am pretty far down the spectrum from Luddites, and I'm not even sure what the opposite of a Luddite is, but we can probably safely say that I'm eagerly awaiting some cyborg enhancements. But as a climate change scientist... I actually have a pretty complicated relationship with technology. And that's because while new innovations are coming out all the time to solve problems we didn't even know we had, it's really easy to fall into this trap where you think that there's a technological solution to everything, from ocean acidification to carbon sequestration. We tend to put a lot of faith in techno fixes to a plethora of environmental problems. And a lot of us are asking, Can technology solve climate change, overpopulation, and biodiversity loss? And does even asking that question actually do more harm than good? So here to help Andy and I think all of this through is Richard Heinberg, who's senior fellow of the Post Carbon Institute. Richard spends a lot of time thinking about the morals and the ethics of our technofix obsession and how our unrealistic expectations are leaving a lot of people behind. Thanks so much for coming on our show, Richard. Well, it's a delight. I'm looking forward to
2: our conversation.
0: So I, li- I literally said to my husband this morning that if we could just get an Instant Pot and a Roomba, all of our problems <laughs> would be solved and our lives would be so much better. So how did we get here with the TechnoFix obsession and why is that such a problem?
2: Uh, well, how we got here is pretty easy to understand. Uh, over the course of the last uh, two or three centuries, we've seen uh, massive uh, innovations in every kind of technology you can imagine. Uh, and part of that was driven just by uh, you know, having more people uh, talking to each other, living in cities, and, and uh, you know, working out smart ways to solve problems. And part of it was driven by the fact that we had uh, an enormous amount of cheap energy available to us by way of fossil fuels and so we just invented a, a you know boatload of technologies to use all of that cheap energy to do things that um you know some things that we really wanted to do and had been trying to do in other ways for a long time and other things that we just never thought of doing with with technology before i mean we've got solid shooters and, <laughs> and uh, you know, uh, technological ways of, of doing things that, that people didn't even know they wanted to do before. So, over the course, particularly of the last century, we managed to solve a lot of problems using technology. We solved uh, polio with a, a vaccine Uh, We managed to increase um, our food production globally quite dramatically with industrial agriculture technologies. Uh, Some would even say we solved World War II with the atomic bomb. Um, And so we we got used to thinking that um, every human problem would have a technological solution. Of course, while this was going on, of course, our, our technologies were having uh, unintended consequences as as well and so some of those unintended consequences were things um, that we then invented new technologies to to solve so it this has become sort of like a, a dog chasing its own tail in some ways as as uh, problems with technology prolifer- proliferate we also find new technologies to solve those problems but Overall, we've we've developed this mindset that says, uh, you know, if you've got a problem, the only way to solve it is to find some kind of technology to, to fix it.
0: So what do you then say to the people who might argue, okay, well, what, what about if I'm the 1950s housewife and the washing machine frees me up from so much extra time, time spent on all of that domestic labor? Like for me, it's been a really good thing. And I'm sure Andy, you know, you could think of some examples of, of, uh, you know, technological solutions to environmental problems that have improved, you know, energy access or um, yeah. clean air for people in developing countries.
1: Well, I just, just to weigh in briefly, I saw some of this just in India a few weeks ago, I'm finishing a big package on energy poverty focused on uh, cooking and um, you know the amount of time women spend there um, it's four hours a day cooking (laughs) just cooking that's just at the stove Um, and that's if it's a three stone fire Uh, the efficient stoves are no different in that sense and um and then we we were seeing women along the roadside late in the day collecting fire wood and uh, we asked them what for and it's to to heat bath water so the the price the cost of a bath in uh, rural india east of mumbai is uh an hour and a half collecting wood going back spending an hour getting the fire going and you're in your indoor smoky deadly fire and heating enough water that your kids can bathe and that's uh you know they would say that um they all crave lpg for example the right. gas the gas that we use in our backyard grills yeah well, so it's it you know it's interesting. you know, but you do ask very important. the question is like how much is enough and and then the equity issues are there and all kinds of things. So it's it's very important to ask these questions
2: right well i'm I'm glad you brought up those examples because um the the argument I'm making is not that technology is a bad thing on balance. Um, the, the argument really is that we're we're depending on technology um, to solve some really, really serious problems we're having this century, Uh, notably climate change, overpopulation, and biodiversity loss, that are themselves, to a very large extent, results of past implementation of of technologies. Uh, Climate change, of course, is the result of of burning fossil fuels, which power uh, most of the technology we have in the modern world. Um, overpopulation is uh, is the result of some very good things, you know, as as I mentioned mm-hmm. earlier, industrial agriculture and and also uh, developments in um, public health, and sanitation, and so on. Uh, biodiversity loss is largely the result of. Uh, overpopulation. <laughs> more more yeah. people needing more space and more stuff. And it's also partly the result of climate change and, and, and other things. But now, you know, we're wanting to solve these problems with still more technologies. And th- the argument I'm making is that, yeah, technology can help. There are certainly technologies like solar and wind power that need to be developed further um, in response to to climate change and and so on, we could you know all talk about other examples of that, but without a fundamental uh, moral and ethical shift, uh, broadly speaking uh, across the world, technology isn't going to solve these problems by itself. Uh, the market is not going to solve these problems. It's going to take um, confronting some basic questions about economic growth, about uh, human reproduction, about the size of human population that that is really uh, supportable long-term on planet Earth and and how we get there. And these are, these are questions that you know you can't put off to uh, even to solar panels as, as, as much as we might like them. These are questions that really require dialogue, negotiation, and in some cases, you know, willing sacrifice.
0: So I'm glad that you made that distinction, um, because, you know, often the, the interpretation, you know, when, when someone calls for, for, you know, greater environmental consciousness, often people hear, you know, you're going to take my stuff away and make, you know, why don't we all just go live in, in caves and, um, and just you know give up give up technology altogether but you're it sounds like what you're arguing for is again not necessarily that the technological developments that have have helped people or improved lives have necessarily been bad but that we're then sort of projecting that reliance on technology into a set of solutions that are unrealistic for the future and it it was it was interesting that you 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 mentioned the words you know moral and ethical um, mm-hmm. And I'd love I'd love you to unpack that a little bit. I'd love to, to hear what you mean when you say, you know, that we have a, a, that there's a, a we're not thinking about the moral and ethical consequences of that technofix obsession. So what do you mean by that? Well, uh,
2: let's just take climate change for example. Uh, if we um, if we were really convinced that climate change could be solved by technology alone then there there would be no need for uh any you know serious uh, moral or, or ethical intervention but it's pretty clear that uh we're going to have to change a lot of what we're doing in order to uh, uh, deal with climate change that means there there are inevitably going to be winners and losers and overall i i would argue that um, we're we're going to have to downshift the size of our overall economy. It's we're not going to be able to continue growing our economy as we have during the during the 20th century, and still come out the end of of this century with with a habitable climate. So how do you do that without? Um, Making some you know really significant uh moral choices and decisions and how how do those get made without you know involving the people who are going to be most impacted this is this has got to be a conversation that is both uh political and and moral uh, otherwise uh, you know either the problem doesn't get solved because we just kick the can down the road or uh, it gets solved in such a way that uh, you know some people benefit a lot, and other people just fall off the edge.
0: So, can you? What uh, it, it's? It, I don't. I'm not. I'm not trying to be too aggressive here, but when you, it sounds like you're dancing around some possible examples, and you, you've sort of talked about overpopulation a bit. So, is are you talking about like population control or? Um, I mean, what are what are the sort of specific moral choices? Can you give me some examples? Well, sure. In, with regard to population,
2: um, you know, the, the the efforts that we've made so far and and many successful efforts have been as a result of moral concern and intervention. You know, there are uh, m- m- many countries that have instituted. Uh, population programs family planning programs that have seen their population growth rates uh, decline substantially and those countries have benefited as as a result it's very clear that countries that have a very high population growth rate have a lot of trouble lifting people out of poverty because you know people in in very poor countries that have big families are unable to, you know, save money, build up any capital for investment. Uh, all of their money goes just towards supporting the their, their very large families. So uh, there are several important population and family planning organizations that have done really good work in this regard. I, I can think of, for example, the Population Media Center that uh, works in poor countries with creative artists to develop radio and sometimes television dramas Uh, and you know people by the millions tune into these these dramas on a a daily or weekly basis and hear the stories of of these characters that they get to know and in the course of the development of the characters and their stories uh, are there are woven in uh, subjects of you know the status of, of women within the family and within society and women's uh, opportunity and ability to make choices about family size and and so on and this has been shown to have uh, you know remarkably uh, uh, great impact on uh, population growth rates and for the amount of, of money that's expended it's it's actually probably the cheapest uh, intervention that's been tried but my, my point is the people who are involved in these kinds of efforts have gotten involved out of moral concern for, for these questions. We could talk also about uh, efforts to establish um, uh, uh, preserves uh, to uh, preserve habitat for for biodiversity. Uh, these are efforts that have have their impetus in you know people, sometimes wealthy people, sometimes not. You know, seeing the the need for uh, maintaining habitat so that we can keep uh, biodiversity from declining further, and sometimes making huge. Uh, uh, gifts, or uh, or spearheading government efforts to set aside land for this purpose. So, what what we've managed to do for the environment over the last fifty years has mostly been as a result of moral intervention. And yet, now at this critical point where we're finding, you know. Uh, biodiversity loss, climate change, uh, you know, really banging on the door and requiring uh, more from us. So many folks, even in the environmental movement, are saying, you know, uh, the moral conversation really isn't that important. What's important is just that we, you know, um, develop more techno fixes and and, uh, we we can't ask Mm -hmm. people to uh, you know change the way they live or or negotiate away any any current advantages that that we have that's that's just not going to work what we what we need are are painless ways of uh, um, you know, s- solving the problem with more machines
1: it's uh, such a there's so many rich uh, threads here I just want to pick on a couple one sure. is that and I think the environmental movement has yet to um articulate this, but the um, other value of making sure family planning capacity is uh, in your basket of policies when you think about climate change is that, and I've, I've mentioned this on the show before, um, in places like sub-Saharan Africa where the, the by far the thing that is putting people at risk fastest is rising populations, it's not changing climate. And 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 in that area also the climate models are still really dumb. You talk to uh, the folks at the geophysical, uh, you know, GFDL, um, the the leading climate modeling centers. Uh, they still have big billion-dollar models that disagree on whether Africa, is that part of Africa, is going to get wetter or drier. And 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 the marvelous paleo community that Jacqueline's from has done really scary, incredibly scary works there, showing that like Ghana, you know that whole b- uh, band of countries south of the Sahara are just implicitly super vulnerable to mega droughts uh, with our existing climate. Uh, so the thing that matters most if you care about uh, reducing um, vulnerability, reducing risk to human populations, then if family planning, uh, and this has nothing to do with, the, the normal argument for climate for po- population is, oh my God, there'll be more people, they're gonna make more global warming it's actually this is the, to me a much more salient and urgent argument because it's on a time scale that matters and it relates directly to people's lives today or through the next 20 years let's say right
0: so what about the the moral or ethical arguments that i mean when when people talk about population control um you know often often people bring up things like the one child policy that china had and how that was devastating for girls um or um the, you know, the, the moral or ethical arguments that, you know, we as Westerners can't turn around and tell developing countries that they don't get to have the, the same kind of prosperity that we have. Um, uh, how, I mean, how do you respond to those those counter arguments?
2: Well, first of all, China is uh, about the only example we have of a country that's used coercive policies to reduce uh, uh, population growth rates there are many examples of countries that have used uh non-coercive uh efforts quite successfully Uh, one of those is iran which went from i think about a four percent annual uh population increase uh down to uh, i think it's currently considerably less than one percent it's lower than the the global average Uh, thailand uh, I, I have a, a list somewhere in, my, in this uh, manifesto, but those, those are two that, yeah. that come to mind immediately. But I, I, I think, as I was saying earlier, it's important to see this as a human rights issue. In countries with very high population growth rates, um, the, the prospects for people to you know, pull, themso- pull themselves out of poverty are much lower than in countries that um, that have lower growth rates. Um, And so helping people in poor countries lower their birth rates is actually uh, a a human rights benefit that, uh, uh, fortunately, many countries acknowledge and and welcome. Uh, I think that the argument that you know, somehow this is a uh, a first-world effort to to uh, you know undermine people in in poorer countries or undermine their rights it is completely wrong-headed. It's it's just the way other way around.
1: And by the way, there's just one last thing about that, which is that, and I'm sure Jacqueline knows this this too that, you know, one more American is way more of a climate. Uh, influence than one more person in Ghana mm-hmm. it's yeah. uh, many times more uh, you have a one ton per person per year person or a 17 ton per person per year person that was that's what got me um th- that that was in 2009 what got uh, Rush Limbaugh to s- suggest that I kill myself when I <laughs> when I uh wrote a, I, I mentioned a, <laughs> right. in a webinar that um you know actually maybe the best thing people could do um is uh think of oh it was during the whole carbon it was uh, 2009 it was the run-up to the climate bill and i said well if you're going to have carbon credits and carbon trading shouldn't there be a trade for like avoided children no. and that was the thing he said well mr revkin if you, if you think people are the worst thing that ever happened to the planet why don't you just kill yourself and save the planet by dying so it gets to be pretty interesting sometimes i i remember that occasion yeah <laughs> yeah
0: and so i mean this is obviously like a, a very it's well it's not just a sensitive topic it's like a I don't know that smack in the middle of a Venn diagram of a bunch of really sensitive topics. <laughs> and so I'm really glad, I mean, I, I, it, it, I'm, I'm not trying to, like I said, I'm not trying to be super mean and pushy. It's more like, I just want to make sure that we're, we're being really clear because so many people can hear this and, and yeah. then just conflate these ideas with, you know, a bunch of, you know, I think really wrongheaded ideas or wrongheaded yeah. approaches, um, or at least approaches that center the environment over, over people. And I think that those approaches are, are pretty doomed to fail, um, mm. and uh, for a lot of different reasons, obviously. But um, not everyone agrees with me. Certainly, we often hear from listeners who are uh, annoyed at us for not being, um, uh, you know, I guess, extreme enough or alarmed enough, um, or not willing to put, you know, the environment over human beings. Or um, so cer- certainly, there's, you know, this is a hard thing to talk about, especially when it's when you when you start to talk about. Population. I mean, it's interesting because when when I was in sort of middle school, this idea of overpopulation was was something that we got kind of hammered home, or at least I, I picked up on it very very deeply um, as a sort of middle schooler and a high schooler. And then I felt I feel like it just fell off the radar. It was just for various reasons, some of which we've mentioned. So far today, it, it just became something you couldn't talk about. Mm. Uh, it it was it's, it was all about sort of innovation and, and increasing efficiency, reducing the sort of per capita emissions, and less about re- reducing the population overall or reducing the growth rates, I guess, and. It's interesting because oftentimes sort of people who are old timers in the environmental movement often ask me, like, why did we stop talking about that? Why, why aren't you young people talking about population control? And, right. and you know, there are a whole bunch of moral and ethical reasons why why we stopped talking about that. And, and also probably I, I've also wondered, too, if the sort of rise of the anti-choice movement might have something to do with that as well, because, you know, family planning involves a whole plethora of tools and techniques um, that, you know, that large portions of the this country at least oppose. and so politically it becomes sort of a way of even further polarizing the environmental movement, which has its own sort of set of um, of issues
2: right i I, I think yeah. you're absolutely right about that. and part of of the reason the subject went off the radar was that uh, population growth rates have indeed uh, declined you know from mm. over over two percent per year globally to about 1.1% now. So, you know, a lot of people would look at that and say, well, the pro- the problem is solving itself. But actually that that trend has has recently stalled. And so we're right. we're stuck at about 1.1%, which you know, if that doesn't sound like much, but a 1% annual growth rate implies a, a doubling every 70 years. So, can we can we double the human population on planet Earth from 7.5 billion, which is what it is now, to 15 billion uh, by before the end of this uh, century, and uh, without, you know, some pretty dire impacts, not just on on climate and and habitat for biodiversity, but but also in terms of how are we going to support all those people? We're currently adding about 85 million people a year on a net basis that's births over deaths. So if you think about that that's you know the population of London and New York and Tokyo and Los Angeles and and maybe a little bit left over all added together and yeah. and we're we we need to you know feed and house and clothe and provide healthcare for those 85 million people each and every year. That's that's an enormous Enormous job. Another thing that's happened is that we've we've uh, we've attributed declining population growth to something called the demographic transition. The idea is that as people become wealthier, uh, they decide to have fewer children. And this this is a controversial idea. It's uh, the relationship with the data is a little sketchy, but. In order for this to, in order for the demographic transition to solve uh, the problem of human population uh, growth, overall growth, that implies that you know all of the folks in poor countries are some, somehow going to have to uh, come up to a sort of Western middle class standard of living, which is a nice thought. But again, that uh, the implication for that, in terms of energy usage, uh, resource depletion, etc., is uh, is complicated. Um, no one is suggesting we don't want these folks to have uh, as satisfying a way of life as as we have. But I think the question becomes then, you know, is the earth able to support? Uh, seven and a half billion people living at a Western middle-class uh, standard of living, and I think the the answer is pretty clearly no. Uh, there's an organization called the Global Footprint Network that uh, tracks, you know, how, how many resources we use and what, how much of Earth's productivity it takes to to provide those. And according to the Global Footprint Network, we're already using about 1.5 Earth's worth of productivity. And of course, the way we do that is drawing down productivity uh, that would otherwise be available to future generations, You know, cutting down uh, forests, diminishing the size of, of, uh, of uh, Earth's productive potential for, for the future. So if everyone were to live the way folks in the United States do, they figure we would need something like four planets. Uh, Obviously that's that's not going to happen. We don't have four planets. So uh, what is really necessary is for uh, for us to converge globally toward a standard of living that is uh, able to be provided sustainably long-term by the planet, and that once again becomes a moral and ethical discussion uh, and just putting it off onto a, a trend that's largely driven by technology, mm-hmm. namely the demographic transition, really obscures and puts off um, the the need for that that moral and ethical
0: conversation yeah so oh, go ahead, Andy.
1: Well, and uh, uh, you're you're spot on in in this, um, but this is where I think it's valuable to step back and look at the population question, not as a single question. But uh, I really learned a lot from Joe Shami, who used mm-hmm. to run the population division, and now is a demographer on his own, does incredibly interesting work. One of my first posts on Dot Earth, October two thousand seven, uh, was titled "The Population Cluster Bomb" because it was basically proposing that. You know, the world is is made of imploders and exploders in a bunch of average countries. And hmm. and it, it's what can you do in the exploders right now that that can modulate those trajectories that can make the most difference, at least in terms of numbers. And and there it's this. And this circles back to what Jacqueline was saying, that it's not like onerous things. It's like getting women through girls through high school. <laughs> I mean, what's onerous right. about that? What's top down or, or it's giving more opportunity in education? Uh, the two thing single things are getting girls through high school and urbanization, and and those can really make a difference. So, but then then you run into these huge issues. Like in Nigeria, you know, there's extremists whose goal in life is to prevent girls from getting through high school, and so that that to me makes um, uh, fighting Boko Haram kind of an environmental imperative. If you really circle things fully. Uh, It it just says that there's a lot of linkages here that and and, uh, in the end, I think it's valuable because it says this is not an environmental problem. These things we think of as environmental are really circular systems issues that have lots of entry points. Um, And you can that's where you can engage, you know, if if your audience is conservative, but but worried about instability in sub-Saharan Africa, you know. And actually, this is a Jim Mattis kind of thing. You know, the reason he's interested in climate change is because of those things, more than because of, um, you know, sort of regulating industry. But it's a way to, you can build a more, it seems like it's there's a lot of potential in the arguments you make to build in a lot more conversation and, and action.
0: Yeah, and I think it also, it speaks to how these problems are complicated. They are, um, and again, that there are, you know, it, as Andy was pointing out, I, I like to think of them as like collateral benefits, right? So fixing or addressing some of these problems has so many benefits beyond climate solving climate change that af- affect so many other spheres of life that, e- you know, even if the the planet wasn't warming, and even if it wasn't anything to do with human activities, there would still be benefits to, to, to making a lot of these changes. And And the complexity of the problem, I think, might be one of the reasons why there's such a Fixation on on technological solutions, and f- for me, you know, aside from the the population issue, one of the the sort of techno fixes that I come across a lot is is geoengineering. So a lot mm-hmm. of people ask me, you know, well, can't we just, you know, add iron to the oceans, or can't we just, you know, put sulfates uh, in the atmosphere? And cool the planet manually, and kind of offset these issues. And it sounds like such a simple solution, but so many of these proposed geoengineering fixes have so so many potential side, negative side effects. You know, like adding sulfates to the atmosphere could you know result in ozone depletion, or um, you know increased ocean acidification, or increased acid rain, or, or or sky whitening. I mean, there's a lot of different sort of. P- potential negative impacts of what seems like a very sort of simple, straightforward solution, and I think this this idea of a of a straightforward, simple, f- quick fix is so enticing because it means we don't have to think hard and we don't have to ask these difficult questions. Um, but it's also, I think, really damaging because it it, it creates this this sense that. Well we can just delay any action on climate change because eventually the technological solution will emerge. We can just sort of delay having to make a decision on these issues because innovation is happening all the time, and there will be you know the the magic bullet like the the, the way that you know the steam, the steam engine sort of revolutionized production and transportation um, you know will we'll have the equivalent of the steam engine or the, the the electric light bulb or you know something like that for the environment.
1: So, you know, this conversation has led me back. I've actually been thinking like three times as we've been talking about Pete Seeger because he wrote a great song called Doubling. You know, we've all been a doubling, doubling, a doubling, all been a doubling down through the years, which is about population growth. <laughs> but then he also, um, I was sitting with him one day and we were talking about progress and I can't remember how it came up, but he said, he, here's a, a clip. I, it's on from Dot Earth. It's on my SoundCloud thing. Hold on.
3: I put it this way. He said... Scientists have the most dangerous religious belief in the world. And the scientist he's talking to, he, I have a page where he, he took a page to say, the scientist I'm talking to says, Charlie, I don't have a religious belief. I make all my decisions based on science, uh, double-checked around the world, and then I move forward. Uh, oh no, my father says. You think that an infinite increase in empirical information is a good thing? Can you prove it? And of course, they can't prove it. Right. So well, that makes it an act, of, an article of faith. It's 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 a religion. It's it's not it's not a scientific belief. It's a religion. So where do you go with that? And where does that? Well, the scientists stagger off. You no know right to ask questions <laughs> like this, and my father shouts out, to him, face it, it's a religious belief." <laughs>
1: So you you get the idea. It's about uh, there is a sense of faith there. You no one could actually demonstrably say that we're not going to hit a wall. That you know that, right. and that's um, uh, I think a valuable thing to think about. Are we are we on a spiral? You know, one of these upward spirals that's got that. Um, who was the guy with the feathers that came off? You know, I don't know. By the way, I, I, I thought about this. I, by the uh, way, I thought about this for a long time one day. And I realized there is one thing that we sort of pulled back from. I mean, there's many. You know, we didn't have a nuclear war, but um, you go to one of the airports, you can see the Concorde, you know, the uh, supersonic jet, and like mm-hmm. we stopped. <laughs> that didn't. We didn't go faster. The jets had all these complications, the son, the sonic booms, and 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 th- so there is an example of like pulling back. I, it's. I don't know. There must be others, but that one struck me as like pretty unusual. I haven't.
0: Well, there there are a lot of biological phenomenon. I mean, I, actually, I would. I mean, not not that I would ever want to disagree with Pete Seeger, but maybe he was talking to physicists. I don't know, but um, I think a lot of biologists would appreciate the idea that you you can't have infinite growth, right? We know that. Um, there's the, there's the whole sort of you know. Uh, a green economics movement that that really uses principles in, in ecology to really undermine this idea that you can't you can't have infinite growth right there there will always be a point at which resources level off or, or no longer available populations will crash when they exceed certain thresholds like that's that's something that's very deeply ingrained in biology and so um i think that there are there are lessons in in some of the sciences at least that that really also kind of underline that conclusion as well
2: uh, Jacqueline, I'd like to go back to something you were talking about uh, a little bit earlier, which was geoengineering. Mm-hmm. Um, oh yeah, and um, to, in my view, this is this is a, a window into a, a different way of thinking about uh, solutions to our, our our big environmental problems, because geoengineering is uh, is typical of sort of the symptomatic approach to uh, to climate change i mean the, the symptom is the, the the earth's getting warmer so we you know we put some particles in the upper atmosphere to to shield the earth from uh, a certain amount of solar radiation so that uh, so that the earth doesn't get as hot but really these are systemic problems and what we need is more systems thinking uh, another way of dealing with climate change might be, for example, to uh, build topsoil through different agricultural practices. This is uh, often called carbon farming. And it's not a complete solution. We wouldn't be able to sequester enough carbon, but it's 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 something that would help and possibly help a great deal to you know, pull carbon out of the atmosphere and put it where it would actually do the most good. And the difference between these these two approaches geoengineering and carbon farming is that carbon farming is more of a, a systems thinking approach to the problem. In other words, it has uh, not just an immediate benefit in terms of the, the, the symptom that we're most concerned about at the moment, but it's actually getting to the heart of some of the, of, of the basic problems that are, that are resulting in, in the symptom. And it's it, it as a result it tends to solve more th- than one problem or, or or treat more than one symptom at, at once because one of one of the other symptoms of our, our global environmental crisis is the fact that we're losing topsoil we're losing about 25 billion tons of topsoil per year and so building topsoil really makes a lot of sense in this context because it not, not only does it solve the, the topsoil problem and, and ensure that future generations of humans will be able to grow their food, but it also sequesters carbon at the same time. So as as I was looking across the, the spectrum of the kinds of solutions that are being proposed to climate change, um, uh, rapid population growth, uh, biodiversity loss, it became pretty clear that the, the uh, The kinds of solutions that demand almost nothing from us in terms of changes in our lifestyle, uh, the kinds of solutions that might be called techno fixes, are all on sort of one side of this, uh, this divide, and on the other side are systemic solutions, but those Uh, even though they they have a lot going for them in terms of solving more problems, uh, more than one problem at the same time, they tend to demand more in terms of system change. Carbon farming, for example, would really require that we change a lot of our agricultural practices, uh, not just in the U.S., but around the world. We'd have to start doing things in a very different way. It would have... You know, huge implications for agribusiness and and for, uh, for for industrial farmers. So once again, we we get back to this this requirement that you know that we if if we really want to get to the root of of the global uh, environmental crisis, we're going to have to deal with fundamental ethical and moral questions.
1: By the way. Oh, sorry, Jacqueline?
2: Oh, go ahead.
0: There,
1: there's also, <laughs> you know, my wife's a science educator and environmental educator, and her latest push is on systems thinking in education because uh, yeah. the only way this will ever be addressed is if we uh, somehow can build the capacity for te- students to learn and teachers to teach um, around that concept of problems be uh, even what i'm looking at right now in india you know the solution and and environmentalists need to learn something about this too because i I think uh, the traditional environmental thinking is very is not systems thinking it's get the bad guy sue them or you know out them and then all will be well as opposed to what is the fundamental nature of what we're looking at here and even with the uh, the cooking issues i was talking about earlier if you just think it's a stove problem you're missing the problem
2: right
0: yeah, and so I'm a I'm a really big science fiction fan, and there's a subgenre called mundane science fiction, which I think really gets at this too this um, this issue of sort of magic bullets. Because um, so this this uh, subgenre of mundane science fiction was really pioneered by the author Jeff Ryman. And the, the basic idea is that there, that too much of regular science fiction is based on what he calls an adolescent desire to run away from mm-hmm. the world. So things like warp drives, wormholes, faster than light travel, etc. basically just give us this illusion that when things here on Earth get bad, we can just leave. Mm. And Ryman really argues that this encourages a wasteful attitude towards the Earth and its resources. And so, you know, in mundane science fiction, there's no faster than light travel, like you basically are, are in the solar system, they, they actually don't this is even based on, on scientific arguments that, you know, getting outside of our solar system will never really be possible, we'll never be able to overcome some of the issues with, uh, you know, radiation in space and energy, etc. And it, on some levels, it feels kind of bleak, right? Because this, this sort of magical Star Trek fantasy of, of you know, all the strange new worlds that we might be able to one day inhabit are sort of kept kept from us, right? That's, that's an unrealistic idea, this sort of utopian idea. Um, but on the other hand, you know, I, I can, I can, there's the, I, I sort of see the pull in both directions, right? I see, I see, I think there's a place for that mundane science fiction that really forces us to grapple with the limitations of what we have here on earth and our responsibility for the planet. Um, but I also, on the other hand, feel like there's this need for, for, for vision and for, for hope and creativity and, and possibility that I think you know, the Star Trek scenario gives us. Um, but, you know, if, if, if at the same time it's it's really, you know, I, I often see people saying, oh, my gosh, we have to get off the planet, right? We have to get mm. off the planet because the planet is trash. Like, there's no going back. And it's this very sort of fatalistic view. Um, and it, it, so it's interesting that, you know, the idea of, of um, these science fiction worlds where you can just hop onto another planet is both strangely sort of utopian in that there's always a possible future out there, but it's also somewhat... Um, kind of ironically, it's also a very dark vision of our own planet and this idea of giving up on Earth uh, when there's still so much that can be done. Um, I don't know. I I think science fiction intersects really nicely with some of these things, not only in terms of the very ideas of geoengineering and and, and how those (laughs) will play out for for people and planets. And I'd love to have Kim Stanley Robinson on the show Mm -hmm. sometime to talk about Mars. But um, yeah, I I just think that there's some really interesting intersections there.
1: Totally. Well, you know, it's about... You mentioned Kim. I, I had him do a guest post for Dot Earth when when the uh, West Antarctic Ice Sheet News came out a couple of years ago. Um, everyone was saying, oh, you know, we're doomed. Um, it's already done. And I, I had him and Kurt Steger, who's, you know, thinks on long time scales, paleo guy, but looks to fu- the future, too. And and oh, someone else, <laughs> three people wrote, I asked them to envision a world with, you know, sea levels with substantial change by 2300. I said, let's take this out to 2300. And they all came up with visions that were not, you know, what do you do? you know, Let's get, get, let's get, <laughs> let's look at this. You know, if we don't have like, there's so much sea level rise baked into the system anyway, that if we don't have a younger generation that has at least a few people who are excited about the design challenge there then, and we're all just kind of gloomy doomy, um, then we're missing a, a, an important part of the realities of it. It's It's another form of denial.
2: Right. Yeah, You know, we've been gifted this amazing planet and uh, it's it's the only planet that we know of that supports any life uh, to speak of in our solar system. And the realistic prospect of our getting to another planet and being able to survive there are vanishingly small. So, uh, yeah, the, the, the sort of Star Trek uh, vision of, of voyaging to other planets and other star systems is, uh, um, you know, it's, it's intellectually stimulating, but it, in in a sense, it's I think uh, taking us away from the, <laughs> the the core questions of of survival here on this planet, which is you know. What a gift. What a gift we've been given with this amazing, amazing blue gem in space.
0: I think that's the perfect place to to end um, with that that vision. And uh, so that's that's our show for this week. And I I hope you all enjoyed it. Uh, I know we only scratched the surface with some really, really tough conversations. Um, We probably didn't cover half of the things that we could have and you know this is this is not the end we will be back please do follow us on twitter at our warm regards and subscribe to our feed on itunes and stitcher and wherever your favorite podcasts are streaming we want to make this your show as much as we can so if there's something that you think we should discuss let us know you can reach us at our warm regards at gmail.com and that's it for this week For Andy and our producers, Eric Mack and Jesse Ann Baines, I'm Jacqueline Gill. Thank you for listening.